going to get you to grab your Bibles, if you would. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. We're continuing a series we started last week called Twisted Love. We're unraveling the uh, cultural deception of sexuality. And this morning, we're going to talk about sex and marriage. You're welcome, all right? Sex and marriage. So the, these two subjects go together. They, they, we can't talk about sex if we, if, unless we're going to talk about uh, marriage. And if we're going to understand the sexual relationship, we have to understand what marriage uh, is And here, here's why this is important for us. What we're going to talk about today is foundational for our understanding of sex and sexuality in, gen, in general. So as we talk about gender ideologies in a couple of weeks, as we talk about uh, the struggle of homosexuality and, and what the Bible says about it, we have to understand just sex and marriage um, in order to have a foundation because everything we understand about the sexual relationship comes from this understanding of how sex and marriage uh, works together. And so today what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna jump right in and I'm gonna give you uh, just three big ideas, three truths about sex and marriage. And two, one of them is gonna have two little offshoots, but we'll get that uh, to that moment, uh, get to that point in a moment. So here's what I'm gonna get you to write down. First thing I want you to learn today about sex and marriage is this, write this down. Sex and marriage is a gift designed by God. That sex and marriage is a gift designed by God. Now I understand this sounds elementary, but, but listen, it's more than elementary, it's foundational for us. We've got to understand, if we're going to understand it, that sex and marriage is a gift designed by God. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, if you're there, say the Bible is true. <clears throat> Here's what we see. So in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. This is mankind. And then what is mankind? Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So we see right here, the very beginning, God creates male and female. That means that sex and gender is God's idea. He creates it, he designs it. And then it says this, and it says that, and then he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. This is the gift of sex that God has given to us in the context of marriage. And how do we know this? is because in Genesis chapter two, we're gonna get to that in a moment, you see a retelling of the creation of humanity and what you find is he creates man and woman, male and female, so that they can be husband and wife and then he gives them the gift of sex to enjoy within that relationship. And here's the point. We've gotta remember that when we talk about this subject that God is the designer of sex and marriage. Sex is his idea, all right? So, this is important because I know some of you are a little bit squirmish today because we're talking about sex in church. And uh, we feel uncomfortable, like can we talk about, can he even say the word sex in church? So let me just kind of let the cat out of the bag. God's heard about it before. In fact, he created it, he designed it. And see, here's part of the deception of the enemy. The enemy has so distorted this gift of sex that is so taboo in our culture and the way that we think about it has so been corrupted that we have a hard time talking about one of God's gifts in the context of a relationship with God. Like it's, it feels so awkward at times talking about this in church because it has been so tainted by the cultural's perspective. And this is a tactic of the enemy and here's why. That if the church is so uncomfortable with the subject that we stop talking about it, that means that the predominant voice in culture and in your life is not the voice of the Lord, it's the voice of the world. And so what we've got to do is recapture 
the essence of this gift that God has designed that he has created. Marriage and sex is a gift that God's designed. It is a good, it is a powerful gift. And we can never understand how to walk in that gift, experience that gift to receive the full blessing that God has intended without understanding, first of all, it's his gift and he's given it to us. Our responsibility is not to uh, distort the gift, it is to steward the gift, right? Like any gift you've been given, someone gives you something for, for the enjoyment, but the type of gift must be stewarded in the way it was supposed to be um, uh, experienced. Otherwise, it's a distortion of the gift and it diminishes, listen to this, the value of the giver. So some of y'all make fun of my shoes sometimes because I'm always in white shoes. I love white shoes. Somebody asked me, how many pair do you have? I don't wanna talk about that. It's not that sermon today, all right? But I, my wife gave me a couple of pair of white shoes for Christmas. And I want you to think about this for a minute. She gives me these, these shoes. She knows I, I love white shoes. She knows I love preaching in white shoes. And so uh, she gives these shoes to me and I'm saying, oh, thank you, sweetheart, for the shoes. And I put them on and immediately I go begin to do yard work in them. Like I'm digging the ditch and I'm working in a mud puddle and I'm just kind of doing the yard work in those shoes. Now listen, functionally, can I do that? Yeah, I can do that. But that's not what the shoes were intended for. In fact, what she's gonna look at is she's gonna see me receiving the gift, using the gift in a way she never dreamed I would use it. And here's what's happening. The gift is not only being distorted, but the quality of the gift is being harmed. And listen to this, the joy of the giver is being harmed as well because now she's seeing this gift being used in a way that was not intended for. And sex and marriage is the same thing. God has given us this beautiful gift and he has a design and a context and a desire for us to walk in it. But whenever we distort it and begin to use God's gift in ways that God never intended, it diminishes his glory and ultimately distorts the gift in a way where we don't receive the full blessing of it. So we have to see fundamentally this morning that sex and marriage is designed by God. It is a gift he has given us and he's created it. Here's truth number two. We're gonna spend a lot more time on this this morning. Truth number two is this. So think about truth number one, sex and marriage is a gift designed by God. Number two, sex by design is for marriage. Sex by design is for marriage. Now, in Genesis chapter two, you see uh, kind of a, a, a second telling of the creation of humanity. I talked about this last week. That in Genesis 1, it's like an overview. In Genesis 2, we kind of hone in on the creation of humanity specifically. And something happens in the story. God observes creation and he sees Adam. He's not created Eve yet. And here's God's observation. It is not good for man to be alone. Like Adam is alone. He doesn't have a counterpart. So here's what God does. God tells Adam, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get all of the living creatures, all of the animals, and I want you to put them on display. And as they pass by, I want you to observe them and I want you to name them. This is kind of a, what we're gonna see in a moment, kind of an e-harmony moment for Adam, all right? And so all of God's creatures are walking by and here's something Adam notices. He sees the animals and he names them and he notices something. Every animal has a counterpart. There's a he hippopotamus and a she hippopotamus, right? There's a he giraffe and a she giraffe. And they're passing by here and Adam notices something. It says that, and Adam observed that there was no suitable helper for him. In other words, he looks at God and says, hey, how come everybody has somebody but me? So here's what God does. God says, okay, Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. So he causes a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And then he takes a rib from Adam's side. And with that rib, he fashions Eve, 
his wife. Now, this is important that we understand that he takes the rib from her side. He doesn't take from her head, his, he doesn't take from his head so that he would be beneath her. He doesn't take from Adam's feet so that he would be over her. He takes from his side so that she would be near him, close to his heart. And this beautiful picture that we see here is that what God is creating to resolve the tension in Adam's life of the need for companionship was not to make just a friend, but to make a spouse. And he creates a counterpart. He doesn't create someone just like him, although she's of his kind. She's different, but she's the same. She's different in the best ways and she's the same in the best ways. Now notice what Adam says in verse 23 when he beholds her for the first time. It says, then the man said, this is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of a man. Adam was like romantically in love the first time he sees her. He, he literally breaks out into poetry here. Finally, there's someone like me, but not like me. She is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I'm gonna call her a woman. She's kind of like me, but we're not the same. And there was this moment of this epiphany that God has made her for me and me for her. And then you have the very first wedding ceremony in the history of creation. And God is the one who presides over it. Verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And then the greatest verse in all of the Old Testament. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Favorite verse in all the Bible right there. Here's the point. God created marriage and God created sex for marriage. That's the point here. This is what we're finding from the very beginning. God created marriage. So if we're gonna understand marriage and the sexual relationship within marriage, we've gotta define marriage. But the great news is we don't have to define marriage. The Bible already defines it for us from the very beginning at the origin of marriage. God establishes this in the Garden of Eden. So let me give you a functional definition based upon Genesis 2 of what marriage is because this is the place that we gotta begin from, all right? So let me give you a definition of marriage. Marriage is one man and one woman united by covenant for a lifetime. That's marriage. It's one man, one woman, united by covenant for a lifetime. And it's important that we understand this. God uses very careful language when he describes his design and what he created. It says he created husband and wife. He says, and the man, for a man shall leave his father and mother and take hold of his what? His wife. It says in Genesis chapter one that he creates them male and female, meaning that God is both the creator and the designer of our gender and sexual orientation. God could have created anything, amen? Like God is God, he could have created anything, but he didn't create anything. He created male and he created female. And I'm not gonna talk about gender ideology this morning, but I wanna make sure that we understand foundational that God created two genders. There's male and there's female. God created husband and wife, and that's his intention for marriage. This is what God blesses. And he also created this to be a union, a, a union of a covenant that, 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 that binds us together for life. This is God's intention. So follow this, marriage is not just a piece of paper. 
Marriage is not just some sort of license that's given to you by the government. It is not just some uh, government-created thing. Marriage is a divine thing. Marriage is not just a piece of paper or a legal agreement. Here's what the Bible's teaching us. Marriage is a sacred agreement. Now think about this, the first wedding ever performed, God is the one presiding over it. And Jesus actually doubles down on this later on when he affirms this definition for marriage in the New Testament. You know what Jesus says at the very end after quoting Genesis 2, 24? He says, therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. In other words, what he's saying is, is that there's something more than just a legal agreement or a living arrangement that's being established with marriage. This is a divine union designed by God and meant to be a lifetime between one man and one woman. Listen, God is the designer, amen? So here's what we have to understand. If this is what he created and designed as marriage, follow this, anything other than this is not marriage. Anything other than this is not marriage. This is one of the, the deceptions we have to unravel. Culture wants us to redefine marriage to be whatever we want it to be. The issue is that culture didn't create marriage. Culture didn't design marriage. Government didn't design marriage. It didn't create marriage. This is something that's lost in our generation right now because we can't imagine this. Understand something, marriage came before society. Marriage came before government. Government didn't design it. Society didn't design it. God designed it. You know what that means? If God designed it, he's the only one that can define it. And any redefinition of what God has designed and defined no longer is that thing anymore. This is huge that we understand this. Now think about this. God creates society, listen to this, out of the family. He doesn't create family for the society. Society always comes first. So what God does is he designs a very specific family unit and he says, this is my intended order. And anytime humanity steps in and rearranges God's order, it's no longer what he created. We know this, when you, when you change something into something it wasn't meant to be, you lose the thing itself, right? Like we know this, especially those of you who lived at any moment in the 80s, you understand this? Because there was a product introduced to the market called New Coke. Anybody remember the little short lifespan called New Coke? It was, it was awful, right? I remember when this happened, like the story behind it is this, is that Coca-Cola company kind of owned the market, right? And so, but Pepsi company came along the scenes and for the first time they had a competitor that was actually shrinking their profit margins. And so in a moment of panic, rather than trusting in the reliable product that, that has built the business and company, they distorted it and they created New Coke, which was kind of a knockoff version of Pepsi, right? And it wasn't as good as Pepsi and Pepsi wasn't good, right? And so you have this, this product that's out there and they kind of discontinued their old recipe for Coca-Cola. And what happened was it blew up in their face. Everyone said, no, 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 we, we're not drinking that mess. If we wanna drink a bad drink, we'll drink Pepsi. <laughs> so what happened? Remember what happened? After just a few months of this, you couldn't find Coca-Cola anywhere. I remember one time my parents found a regular old fashioned Coke during that little season. We all took turns drinking it. I remember as a kid. <laughs> 
But what happened was eventually they realized, okay, we've, we've messed up because they discovered that whenever we distorted our product, it was no longer the product we created. So they discontinued New Coke and how did they rebrand it? They said the real thing, right? That was their slogan. You remember that? And now we call it what? Coke Classic. Why? Because they're saying is we're back to the original. We're back to the origin. We've learned our lesson. And here's the thing. Whenever we understand this is what culture is doing with marriage, we're redefining, we're rebranding, we're recreating it. And whenever we do that, it ceases to be the thing that God created. Marriage is instituted by God, created by God. So we see God creates marriage, but then we see also in the story, he creates sex for marriage. These two things are made for each other. Look back, if you would, in verse 24. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is describing the sexual union within marriage. So in Genesis chapter one, when God tells them, be fruitful and multiply, and then he says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. This is the idea of entering into this covenant relationship that's consummated through the act of sex. Here's what's happening. The two are becoming one. So here's what we have to understand. This command to be fruitful and multiply and to take hold of a person is given not to couples, but to a husband and a wife. So sex is this gift that God created and it's a gift that is only given within the marriage context. That's who it's for. And we've got to see this very clearly, that God is placing boundaries around this relationship that we have that's sexual. Now, why would God put boundaries around this relationship? Well, God loves us. And God understands that sex is a very powerful gift that he's given us. It's, it's something that he's given us that, that if we're not careful, it, it'll, it can destroy your life. It's something that can be enjoyable, and pleasurable and something that he wants us to experience the way in which he designed it. But he also knows that this, this gift, if we don't handle it properly, can ruin our lives. And so being a good, loving God, he says, look, I'm gonna not only give you this good gift that's so powerful in your relationship, I'm gonna put boundaries. And that boundary is this, one man, one woman, united by a covenant, for a lifetime, that's the playground, that's the place in which I want you to enjoy this powerful gift. That's the only place I want you to enjoy this powerful gift. Now, just think about this for a minute. I, last couple of weeks have been pretty cold outside and y'all have heard me use this illustration before, but I think it's, it's the best one I have. It's the only one I have. But I love a fireplace. I love the fact that when it's cold outside in the mornings, I, I, I would get up, drink a cup of coffee. I will, I don't, I'm, I've got the... the, the um, not so manly version of a fireplace. I don't build a fire. I turn the fire on with a switch. I lose my man card for that one. Um, but anyway, so I turn the fire on and I love sitting beside the fireplace drinking my coffee. Why? Because there's something about the warmth of the fireplace on a cold morning. I love getting up uh, early in the morning and, you know, with the kids, especially on Christmas and we're there and the, there's a fire going and it's cold outside and you've got this just intimate environment and it fills the room with just so much warmth and comfort. We have fire pit outside in the spring and the fall, we'll go out there and my son will play his guitar and we'll get, just hang out there for a while because we love the warmth and the glow of the fire and the pop of the sound. All of that is unbelievable. It brings so much comfort and joy and it's just an enjoyable experience, right? Now I want you to imagine this, take the fire out of the fireplace just about six inches and place that same fire into the middle of the living room, what's gonna happen? 
the thing that brought warmth and comfort, intimacy and enjoyable experience now burns the entire house down. Now, it, it, it's, listen, it's not gonna bring joy, it's gonna bring destruction. And this is what I believe God is doing for us by giving us parameters around the sexual relationship. You see, sex is the fire and marriage is the fireplace. And as long as this gift that God has given us stays in the fireplace, we can enjoy that gift. We can experience the comfort and the intimacy and the joy and the pleasure of that gift. But whenever humanity takes the fire out of the fireplace, it burns our life down. And so God in his grace and mercy not only gives us this good gift for our pleasure and for his glory, but he gives us boundaries. And here's what he knows. If we play outside the boundaries, if we take the fire out of the fireplace, what was meant to bring pleasure brings pain. And what was meant to glorify him diminishes his glory. Let me give you two reasons why. This is where I told you I got some sub points in here I'm gonna give you give you two reasons why God has given us the context of marriage because for our protection. Because there's something about sex that goes way beyond just the physical. Here's the first, I want you to see this. Number one, sexual intimacy. This is huge here. Sexual intimacy is the knitting together of souls. Sexual intimacy is the knitting together of souls. I want you to look back at Genesis chapter two, verse 24. Listen to this. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The, the phrase hold fast there it is the picture of sexual intimacy. It's consummating the marriage through the act of a sexual relationship. The word literally means to cling or adhere. It's the idea of being glued together or being melded together. So think about this for a moment. If you take two pieces of metal and you weld them together, what do you have in the end? You have one piece of metal. They've been joined together. And the descriptive word that God uses about the, this, this covenant union that's consummated through the sexual intimacy is that they're adhered to one another. They're glued or they're uh, uh, melded together into one. And that's the byproduct. They shall become what? One flesh. The idea of one here is not just quantitative, it's qualitative. It's not just two becoming one, although that's the same, but it's more than just getting the same last name. This one is a one of essence. There's a oneness relationally that is the byproduct of this. It's not just we're married, it's that we have now merged our life together, not just physically, but spiritually and emotionally. That we are tied together at the soul through the act of sexual intimacy. This is important that we understand that sex is not just for pleasure, although it is for pleasure. We don't, can't miss that. That God has given us certain desires God has allowed certain uh, things to feel certain ways. God is the creator of pleasure. But sex is not just for pleasure. Sex is not just for procreation, although it is for reproduction and procreation, right? But that's not primarily, it's not primarily for pleasure or procreation. Within the marriage relationship, watch this, sex is primarily for intimacy. It's for intimacy, it's for the bonding of a married couple together. God has created this powerful gift called sex to bond, to, to bond us with our spouse through the act of sexual intercourse. This is not just a physical body. We don't just have a physical body, we are a soul. 
And whenever we act in, 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 in sexual relationship, we are engaging not just our bodies, but our soul together because this is what God has designed it for, designed for there to be an emotional and spiritual attachment to the person that we're engaging sexually with. You see this in the Bible very clearly. The first mention of sex is right there in uh, Genesis 2 explicitly. You see it in Genesis 1 as well. Be fruitful and multiply. He's given this, this command to, to a married couple. And then he says that man shall leave his father and mother and take hold of his wife. The idea is not just having sex with her. It is the idea of being made one with her. Now, if you fast forward to Genesis chapter 4, here's what you find. In Genesis chapter four, there's a verse that says this. In chapter four, I think it's verse one. It says, and Adam knew Eve and Eve conceived and gave birth to a son. Now, you, you don't have to be a health professor to understand when he uses the word knew what he's talking about. Like if you know someone and the byproduct of knowing them is that they're pregnant, we know what knowing them means, Right? Now follow this for a moment. The first time he mentions this in Genesis 2, there's this idea of intimacy, not just sexual activity. And then the second time we see this explicitly, he doesn't say Adam slept with Eve. He doesn't say that Adam had sex with Eve. What does he say? Adam knew Eve and Eve conceived. The word knew there in the Hebrew language is a word specifically, not just knowledge, but intimate knowledge. It is to know in the fullest sense. It is to know someone like no one else knows them. And what the Bible is teaching us is this, the reason God has given this gift of, of, of sex within the context of marriage is that, that sex primarily is about the attachment emotionally, spiritually, through the physical engagement, sexually. This is God's design. This is what he desires Listen to what Paul says about this. Paul says this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter six. Listen to verse 16. He says, or do you not know that the one who is, listen to the phrase, joined to a prostitute. Now, we have to understand what the implications of that is, right? He's talking about engagement sexually. Joined, so he's using the word joined as attached to a prostitute becomes one body with her. Paul is saying this is the reason sexual sin is, is, is such a deviation from God's design because God's intention is for you to have a, a physical union that leads to a spiritual emotional union. And that's what happens when we engage in sex outside of God's design. He says, for it is written, the two shall become one. So he quotes Genesis 2 and says, sex is more than just a physical act. There's an attachment of the soul. You're becoming one with that person when you sleep with them or when you have a sexual encounter with them. This is so important. Listen, sex is more than just being attracted to someone. It's more than a physical act. It is a spiritual, emotional, relational union. Listen, at the soul level. Which is why sexual sin is so devastating. This is why so many people carry around, around wounds because of sexual sin and brokenness all of their lives. You see, culture wants to twist this and say, listen, it's no big deal. Sex is not a big deal. It's just normal human behavior. One night stands are okay. If you're attracted to someone and you wanna sleep with them, do what you desire. Don't let anybody suppress your desires. Act upon, feed the flesh. It doesn't matter. It's just sex. It's not a big deal. But listen, there, it is a big deal. And there is never a moment where there are no strings attached. There are always strings attached. Why? Because your soul is engaged. I, I was right here just for a second. 
I know we don't like making eye contact during sermons like this. The reason some of you in the room have such struggles in your marriage has nothing to do with the predominant issues you fight about. It's the breakdown of intimacy because of sexual sin. Either sin in your past that you've never reconciled, sin within your relationship with one another before marriage that you never owned and acknowledged and repented of, sexual sin that you've let creep into your life in addition to your marriage. And because you've not dealt with that, there's an intimate breakdown because sex was meant to be this bonding that happens between a man and his wife and a wife and her husband. And whenever we bond with other things outside of that, it breaks down our ability to bond. Your capacity, watch this, for relational intimacy is diminished when you walk sexually outside of God's design. This is why, why is it in our culture, the more sexually expressive we become, the more cold and hardened relationally we become? Why is it that our sin becomes more and more deviant and our our conscience seared where we're not even feel guilty? Why is that? It's because it numbs our ability to feel. It numbs the ability to have intimacy. So all of a sudden we begin to view other people as objects for me to be fulfilled by or sex is just an act that I do and it breaks down my capacity for genuine relationship. This is what Sam Alsberry says about this in his book, Is God Anti-Gay? This is a book I recommend uh, that you get. But he talks about the power of the sexual relationship. Here's what he says. He says, the binding effect of sex in a relationship is what makes the breakdown of a sexual relationship so profoundly painful. It's not what we're designed for. And the more that union is forged and then broken, the more our capacity for deep and abiding unity is diminished. In other words, he's saying is that, that, that every time we, we, we bond with someone in the act of sex and, and all of a sudden that relationship is broken and we bond with someone else, our capacity to truly make connection is diminished slowly over time. It's like this, if you were to use a sticky note and you, have you ever used a sticky note before? You just peel the thing off, you write a little note, you put it on something to remind you. Imagine reusing the sticky note over and over and over and over again. It's meant to bond with what it's attached to. But the more that it's pulled away and reattached and pulled away and reattached, it slowly loses its ability to adhere. And this is what happens in our life when we uh, allow sexual behavior outside of God's design. This is what, why pornography is so damaging. It's because God has given us these desires and this appetite that is to be fulfilled by our spouse. And whenever we're adhering to other things, our ability to truly connect is diminished. And by the way, if you're joined together at the soul level, listen, there's not a breakup, it's a rip apart. Imagine gluing two pieces of paper together so that when you're done, you no longer have two pieces of paper, you have one. And then imagine for a moment, you try to pull those pieces of paper apart where they've been glued. What happens? There's a little piece of one that's on the other forever and there's a little piece of one that's on the other forever. In other words, both have a little pieces of what used to be and a piece of who they were is gone. 
God created it like that for a reason. Because it was meant to be what makes families and marriages strong. But we diminish it outside the boundaries. Here's the second reason God has given boundaries. It's not just sexual intimacies and ending together of souls, but listen to this. Sexual uh, uh, marriage and sex is meant to be an illustration of the gospel. Sex and marriage is meant to be an illustration of the gospel. I want you to hear me say this. Sex and marriage is passing away, right? It's not forever. But what is forever is our relationship with Jesus Christ, amen? So here's what we gotta understand. Sex and marriage throughout the Bible is nothing more than a living illustration, a metaphor of God's relationship with his people. Jesus' redemption of the broken, now I want you to think about the journey through the scriptures. In Genesis chapter two, the climax of creation, you get to the very end of creation and what do you find? The apex is what? Marriage. God creates marriage with the very end of it all. And what does he do? He presides himself over the first wedding ceremony. What is this saying? Marriage is a big deal to God. Fast forward in the Exodus what is the first thing that God does with his people when they escape Egypt? They get to Mount Sinai and what do they do? They have a wedding ceremony. You say, what do you mean? Moses presides over it, but this time the wedding is between God and Israel. God says, here are the stipulations. Here's the commands. I'm gonna be your God. You're gonna be my people. I'm gonna bless you and you're gonna walk in my ways. And the people say to God, we do. Fast forward to the life and ministry of Jesus. Where was Jesus' first miracle performed? At a wedding. Blessing this institution that was created in the Garden of Eden. What do you find in Revelation when all is said and done? You have another wedding. This time it's the bride of Christ caught up with the groom at the marriage supper of the lamb where together we will be with him. It begins with a wedding and it ends with a wedding. And throughout the, the scriptures, you see this metaphor of God being our groom and Jesus being the bridegroom and we being the bride and he is redeeming us to make us his own. Here's what we're seeing. Marriage is more than just a legal contract. It is a divine union meant not just for our happiness, but for the glory of God. Because as we live in this relationship of covenant with unconditional love and I'm committed to you and you're committed to me and then within that relationship, this gift of sexual intimacy where I'm gonna give myself only to you and you're gonna give yourself only to me and we're not gonna know anyone else like this as that intimacy and that marriage and that unconditional love is lived out. It is meant to be a living, breathing example of the unconditional love of God and the fidelity he expects from us. This is why throughout the scriptures, whenever God's people walked in idolatry, what was the metaphor that was used? Adultery. When God says, hey, you're giving your worship to idols, he's saying, you're two-timing me. You're cheating. You're... So think about that picture. How would we feel if we find our spouse is, is, is sleeping with other people? We would be heartbroken. We'd be devastated, especially if we're a faithful spouse to them. And what God is saying, I've been faithful to you and you're cheating with me on all of the idols of the world. This picture of adultery is just remind us the fidelity that God desires. And so when we live with sexual fidelity within marriage, it's a living, breathing example 
of what God expects from us. I do this in premarital counseling uh, and it shoots the wheels off of the couples that are in there. Some of you have been through that premarital counseling and I ask this question inevitably. Um, I'll, when I get to this part of our conversation, I'll say, um, I'll look at him typically and say, hey, would, would there ever be a situation where you would be okay with your wife sleeping with someone else down the road? I mean, immediately it's like, no, and I, I'll fight a man right now, right? And then I'll, I'll, look at, I'll look at her and say, hey, would there ever be a scenario down the road where you'd be okay with your husband sleeping with another woman? And she's like, like I'll fight a woman right now. Like, no, there's no, no way. And then I ask this question, wait, wait, wait a second. What if they were 99% faithful? 99, that's pretty good, 99%. I mean, nobody's perfect, right? I've never had a couple say, oh, 99's fine. No, they said, absolutely not. We're not gonna expect anything less than 100%. Here's why. 99% faithful means 100% unfaithful. Now watch this. If that is our expectations within the marriage relationship, and that is what we feel like we're entitled and owed, how much more of our devotion does God deserve? How much more of our affection and our spiritual fidelity does he deserve in our relationship? He's the perfect husband who always does what he says he's gonna do. How much more is he worthy of our faithfulness? So why do we have this such breakdown in our culture when it comes to marriage? Why is the enemy having an all out assault on marriage and trying to redefine it? Why is there such an assault on gender and our confusion about our sexual orientation and identity? Let me tell you why. The enemy hates the gospel. And if marriage is primarily, if sex is primarily a living, breathing illustration of God's redemption of his people, then the enemy will do everything he can to destroy the picture that God has created. Why is this the issue? Why is it marriage and sex at the top of all the controversy? It's because the enemy wants to destroy the image of the gospel of Jesus. This is not a political thing. And this is not just about marriage and sexuality and a stable nation. This is about the image that God has created to display to the world the covenant love and the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. This is why as Christian families, we should not just uphold in the broader sense God's design. We should live out at the micro level in our families, God's design. Amen? Which leads me to this last point. I told you that there's three big points with two middle points. You'll have to work it out in your own notes. It makes sense in mine. Here's the last little truth I want you to see. It's not a little truth, it's a big truth. So I want you to, I'm gonna walk through this, this, the, the stair steps, all right? Sex and marriage is designed by God. Sex by design is for marriage. Here's what that means. Sex outside of God's design for marriage is sin. Sex outside of God's design for marriage is sin. So a, a lot of times when we talk about these issues, people always wanna jump to the hot button topics and ask, well, do you believe homosexuality is a sin? And I always wanna pull back from that because a lot of times that question is loaded. 
And so I don't want to get on the soapbox that a lot of people want to stay on in regards to cultural issues. So let's just say it. Every sexual activity, all sexual engagement outside of God's design between one man, one woman, united by covenant for a life is sin. Period. I'm going to show you in the scriptures. Uh, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter number six. I'll be on the screen. You have to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter six. Look what he says here. He says, flee sexual immorality. For every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, the reason I highlighted and underlined these words here is because um, sexual immorality or sexually immoral, this word immorality is the Greek word pornea. What English word do you think we get from this word? Pornography. Pornea. Now, this word pornea is what I call a junk drawer word in the language. And here's what I mean by that. So you have words for other sexual sins. You have words for sexual sin of fornication or adultery um, or homosexuality. It's a very specific word talking about a very specific sin. And then you have what's called sexual immorality, which is kind of a broad term. And here's what that literally means. Any deviation from God's design that we find in Genesis 2. Any sexual deviation from God's design in Genesis chapter two. So every kind of sexual activity that we do outside of God's design that we've looked at is sexual immorality. And here's the thing. This is where kind of the rubber meets the road in the room this morning. We've got to acknowledge this morning. And this is where some of y'all want me to go a certain direction. We're gonna get there next week and talk about specific sins in our culture. But I would not love you as a shepherd if I didn't say this to you. We have got to deal with the planks in our own eye before we start pulling the twigs out of other people's eyes. We've got to understand the predominant sexual sin that is plaguing the American church today is not homosexual sin. It is heterosexual sin. We love to throw stones at someone whose sin struggle looks different than mine. And somehow we decide to avoid our own. And can I just tell you, God does not have a ranking system. Sexual immorality is sexual immorality. Period. And we've got to deal with it. There are some of you in this room this morning, if studies are, are, are true, right now you are looking at pornography on a regular basis. It's a rhythm in your life. And by the way, don't just think men in the room. This is, the, this is what statistics show us. The accessibility to feed on those desires outside of God's context is in front of us every single day. There are some of you maybe in this room and you are struggling with unfaithfulness in your marriage, it could, be a real, it could be an emotional attachment to someone other than your spouse or a sexual engagement. But either way, it is adultery and it's sinful. There are some of you in this room and lust is just dominating your life. You're not looking at pornography and you're not running around on your spouse, but your imagination runs wild and you're feeding and you're stoking the fire of passion on things other than your spouse. 
There's some of you in the room today and you are not married and you are sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend or just having casual sex with people that are in your life. And I don't care if your intentions are to get married or how much you love them, you are walking outside of God's design. And I just want you to know in the room this morning, look, I'm not here to throw stones. In a couple weeks, you'll hear me talk about the sexual sins that I've struggled with because I want there to be a level playing field here. And I want you to hear me say this. We cannot expect God to bless our life and our marriage and our relationships if we're not willing to deal with the sexual sins in our life. And I'm not talking about trying harder and making new commitments that you're not, I've been down that road. Making new commitments that you didn't have the power to do it before, you ain't have the power to do it now. I'm talking about a brokenness that leads you to confession and repentance and building some structure around your life and then walking every day, striving for the presence of the Holy Spirit to be strength where you are weak. I'm talking about a 180 in your life that is only found by the power of the Holy Spirit through brokenness and repentance. What if the thing that's keeping God's presence and power from being poured out in your life and on your family is the fact that you won't deal with sexual sin in the present or sexual sin of the past. I'm talking about things you have not acknowledged with your spouse, things that you've not confessed, things that maybe you did, the two of you before you were married that you've never dealt with and never repented of. You just kind of moved on in this new life wondering why is it we can't seem to find that happiness and that intimacy and that rhythm. It's because you've not dealt with the things in your life. Could it be that God is withholding blessings from us? Because hear me say this. I see this to couples all the time. God won't bless our sin. He just won't do it. You know why? He loves us too much. He loves us too much. But here, here's the great news. This is an issue of the heart. Matthew chapter seven, here's what Jesus says. Listen to this. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. Here's what Jesus is saying. The root problem isn't your action, it's your heart. And here's the great news, here's the gospel. Jesus didn't come for behavior modification. He didn't come just to help you just kind of grit and bear it and make it through. He came to transform your heart, to give you a new heart that beats for him. Some of you have never received the new heart. Your struggle with sin is that you never been forgiven. You've never been made new. And if that's you this morning, I want you to know you can find mercy and grace today and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior and he can transform your heart. And I would hope you would do that today. Some of you, you have received the new heart. But it means, it doesn't mean that the battle of sin is gone. And now what there, there has to be is a confession of the sin acknowledgement of the sin and then allowing the Holy Spirit to make the new heart that he's given you your, your deepest desire. 
So I'll just confess to you, I, I've never stopped battling some of the sexual temptations. And I'll talk more about this in a couple of weeks. But here's what I have is victory. Because what I've found is a constant surrender. There's a wellspring of power, but it comes through brokenness and repentance and surrender. So some of the temptations in our life may never go away, but listen, the desire to please the Lord, when you feed that, it becomes the dominant desire of your life. That's why Jesus says, I can't start with your outside. I gotta start with your inside. Your inside is your will being surrendered to me. I wanna do something. I'm gonna ask you to stand and just for a moment, we're gonna respond. Some of you need to give your heart to Jesus. Some of you need to ask Jesus what the next step is for you. For some of you, there's gonna be some hard conversations if you're gonna walk in obedience to this that you've gotta have immediately. Some of you, there needs to be just a praying at the altar of just confession to the Lord. And I know the tendency right now in this moment is to I am not moving because I don't want people to think I gotta struggle. Can I just help you? All of us struggle. Like every single one of us struggle in this room. Like I'm the chief among sinners in this house. I need the grace and mercy of Jesus just as much as you. But our pride, our pride keeps us in chains. I just wanna say to you, if God knows, what does it matter what everybody else thinks? What does it matter? Freedom, listen, is on the other side of humility. Freedom is on the other side of humility. What are you willing to do to walk in victory and freedom? Jesus, I love you. I thank you for the cross. I'm gonna ask that you'll lead us in this time, God, that there would be a sense of brokenness over the love that you have for us and the freedom that you wanna give us. Help us to walk in purity and holiness. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship.